Well, I want to ask you, if you would, to be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue our study. We've been going through as a congregation, going through as a church together, through the book of 1 Peter. And we've landed this week in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be focusing our time on verses 9 through 12. But before we read the passage, before we get fully engaged with the passage this morning, I really want to, I want to draw our attention to a couple of things. I want us to know where it is that we are heading in this passage. It's kind of ironic because that's actually what the passage is about this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at how God in His Word reminds us and wants to encourage us that we're headed somewhere. So what I want to remind us this morning so that we can focus our time for the next 30 minutes or so of where we're going to end up going just for our next 30 minutes, God through His Word wants to remind us of where we're going forever. God wants to remind us where we are going for eternity. I love this passage. I love how pertinent it is for every single person that is sitting in this room. And in particular, though this morning, I believe that God through Peter wants us to understand how it is that we are to live our lives. If you've ever just asked those simple questions of what's the purpose in my life now, what's the purpose of the things that I'm doing week in, week out, every day, each month, each year, as I just continue to to move on, what is it, why am I living my life, and am I doing it in a way in which God has called me to do? Well, in particular for the Christian this morning, I want us to see that God's Word wants to encourage us how we're to live our lives, though, in what the Bible actually calls a hostile world. Our passage this morning is going to tell us that we are sojourners, that we are aliens, that we're strangers, we're foreigners in this world, and that it shouldn't surprise us that we actually come against things in this life that are difficult. We come up against things in this life that we don't understand. God's Word wants to remind us that we live in a very hostile world. Now, I'm going to like to tell you this when, when maybe you don't get the, the eye contact that maybe you desperately desire from somebody that's speaking to you, but I could very easily this morning get on so many rabbit trails and on tangents and not be clear on what I want to say that I really want to focus in, I really want to communicate to you this morning what I believe God's message is is for you in your life, because I think this is important. I think it's important that we understand that God has actually told us how we are to live our lives. And God wants to tell, in particular, the Christian this morning, that if you are in Christ, that if you are sitting here this morning, saved by your faith, that you are actually, that you reside temporarily here, in this world and in this life, but that you already have all the rights and all the privileges of a citizen of heaven. If you notice in the bulletin, the the title of the sermon this morning is Dual Citizenship. I want us to see that we reside temporarily for just a little while, for just a moment. We reside in this world, in this life, but if we are saved by our faith alone in Jesus Christ, that we already are actually living in what the Bible says we're living in the future. Now, how comforting could that be to us if we're going through a difficult time? If maybe we have questions that are unanswered, how comforting is that to know 
that God is actually telling us, you know what, this life in which you're living, this world in which you find yourselves in, guess what? This is not where you belong. That if you are a Christian, this is not where you belong. You're not supposed to fit in here. It's not supposed to be easy. So it shouldn't surprise us when we come up against those things in this world. So, in the world, if the Christian is an alien, is a stranger, then, then we actually have certain duties, though, as Christians, as believers, out of our being, as we saw last week, out of being chosen, and out of being precious by God, that we have certain duties. And I want us to unpack some of these as we go forward this morning. First off, that we are to abstain from sinful desires. Now, many of us, as we get together and we discuss, and I know in life groups and in Sunday school and in sermons, we hear that we are to, that we are sinful people, but that we will continue to sin, but it's a battle, it's a struggle. The Christian is to battle and fight that sin, to be with less sin. Well, I want us to ask, what does that actually look like? What does it actually, how does that play out in my life that I'm actually to abstain from sin? that I'm to refrain from those sinful desires, as we will see, that wage war against our soul, as our passage tells us. Secondly, that we live good lives and do good deeds, but in order that and so that we may proclaim God's excellencies. We do good things, we live our lives in order that we may proclaim God's excellencies. Thirdly, we should expect to be attacked. It should not surprise us when we are accused, when we are attacked from those from outside of the Christian community. And then fourthly, and this really sort of goes with number two above of living good lives and doing good deeds, but however, we are to act in such a way that the ones who attack us, the ones that accuse us, we're to act in such a way that they would see and glorify God on the day in which He visits us. So we're going to get a lot of encouragement this morning. We're going to get a lot of motivation I think that many of us need. Many of us sitting in this room need to know why it is that we're going on day to day and living our lives. What is the point of it? What is the purpose? How do I get through it? How do I mow through some of these difficult times? And if it's all candy and balloons, if it's just a party in your life right now, things seem to be going smooth and there's not just one very obvious difficulty that you're having in your life right now. God wants you to hold on to the truth of His Word, telling you that where you are right now, that all the joys, that all the satisfaction that you get out of this world will never amount to anything compared to what God has promised us eternally in His kingdom. So last week, we saw from God's Word that since Jesus is infinitely precious, Jesus the true cornerstone, that living stone that He is infinitely precious, that we become chosen and precious. I want us to see at the end of our time this morning that if we are kingdom-minded, now hear this, that if we are kingdom-minded, we are earthly useful. That if we are kingdom-minded now, we are earthly useful now for God and in His kingdom. So we talked about last week that we're to come to Jesus. It's important that we understand our verses last week. We come to this week because we're making a switch. God's Word is, is kind of making a switch for us this morning. Last week, 
were to come to Jesus, but that wasn't talking about a one-time thing. Bam! Come to Jesus one time, you're saved, you're done, that's the end of it. It's talking about something that we do habitually. Something that we are to do continually. That word come means to come over and over and over and over again. We talked about how that the Bible is actually talking about what we do here corporately. That we come together and we worship God as living stones. Remember, being built upon Christ, the cornerstone. That we are the church. That you are the church. As living stones, you're being built upon the foundational cornerstone that is Jesus. So we come together corporately to worship God. So in verses really 4 through 8 and arguably through verse 10 that we'll actually look at today, Peter was not talking about just private worship of God, but he was talking about something that we're to do together corporately. So if we are united to the one and through the one that was rejected by men, but chosen and precious by God, then we are chosen and precious in God's eyes. But we make a switch this morning. He moves from the distinctiveness and the particularity of God's people as a whole to what he says of the individual saint. God is making a switch and he's saying, not what you do together corporately on Sunday mornings. He's saying, I want to talk to you for just a moment what it is that individual Christians do when they go out into the world and they live their lives each and every day. Peter's not describing for us something that we just do one time. He's talking about something that we do continually over and over and over, but in a way that it encourages the believer and motivates the believer in this life based off the promises of the next life. But this is really good news for us this morning because we want to understand that with all the struggles, with all the difficulties in this life, it's wonderful news to understand and look around and say, you know what, I'm so glad to sit in the end game. I'm so glad to sit in the fourth quarter. I'm glad I'm not just the end of my days. My days have yet to begin. The promises that God has made to me, that all that that I'm looking forward to, He actually wants me to enjoy even now. But I don't think we do that. I don't think that on a daily basis, I actually enjoy the promises of God now in this life. I want to think of them as something that's yet to come. But God wants to encourage us this morning that they are actually for us to enjoy right now, even as you sit in this room. So we're going to see this morning that we are dual citizens. We live temporarily in this world, while if you're a believer in Christ, that you already have the rights and privileges as a citizen of heaven. I want us to see that as we temporarily reside here, that we are permanently already living in God's kingdom. But keep in mind, as we're looking at this today, it's important as we're going through 1 Peter together. What we're understanding today, what God is telling us through His Word this morning is important for the weeks to come. Look at what He's going to do in the verses to come, in the weeks to come. We're going to see from God's Word how we are to react to human authority. How to relate to the government. How to relate to the workplace. How to relate to our co-workers. How is the Christian to actually respond to the workplace? How am I to act there? How am I to respond to people in my life? Look over to chapter 3 in 1 Peter. God's Word is going to tell us how to relate to our spouses in marriage. How to relate to people in general. But it all starts right here in verses 9 through 12. 
there's a very unique submission that the Christian is called to. And I want to read. I want to ask you to stand with me as we do each week. We stand each week because we're recognizing this is God's Word, that it is God speaking to us through the pages of Scripture. And I want to read verses 9 through 12. Starting in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received God's mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you remain standing and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We are amazed that the God of creation cares for us, that You have chosen to speak to us through Your Word. Lord, I pray this morning that You would would put me aside, that You would cast me aside, that You would remove from me the tendency to impress man this morning. Lord, that You would put me aside, and Lord, that You would relay Your message to us hurting people in desperate need of Your grace and mercy this morning. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? I think there's a reason. I think there's a very good reason that the Bible doesn't tell us to be grits and light in the world. The Bible doesn't tell us to be grits and light in the world. What does the Bible tell us? To be what? Salt and light. There's a reason the Bible doesn't tell us to go be grits. Now, if you grew up in the South or in anywhere that was familiar with grits, you understand how grits work. If you had never had grits and you came up to me and you said, Harrison, did you grow up eating grits? I would say, oh, yeah. We had a lot of bowls of grits growing up in my house. If you said, what do they taste like? I'd think about it. And I would pretty much probably bring you to the conclusion that grits taste like whatever in the world you put in grits. Grits really don't have a taste of their own. Whatever you put in grits, grits take on the taste of whatever in the world you put in it. But in contrast to our southern delicacy of grits stands salt. Now, you may think I'm not comparing apples to apples here because salt's really not a food, I guess, but salt has a character that is completely opposite of grits. What happens when you put salt into something? That thing in which you put salt in, that food you put the salt in, salt actually imparts its taste into what you've just put it into. So unlike grits that take on the taste of whatever you put in it, salt puts its own taste in there. It imparts itself into the food in which it's added. Well, I believe this morning that's what God wants to tell us from His Word, that with the world around us, that's happening, that's spinning, that we can't avoid... God wants us to see that we're not to be grits in this world, to take on the taste of the world around us. God has told us to be salt. God wants us, believers, Christians, to actually take God and impart God's taste in the world around us. Now, that may make sense to you this morning to say, okay, I agree with that. 
I'm not to take on the world around me. I'm to impart God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's you fill in the blank with whatever you want. But I don't know that we fully understand how in the world we're to do that. So I want us to see from God's Word this morning that because of what God has done in our lives and the promises that He has made that we are already actually living in the future, that we're not to soak in this world around us, but rather holding on to those promises that He's made that we are to actually impart our lives and our relationship and our knowledge of God into the world around us. But we're so susceptible to the world that's around us because God wants us to know that if we are kingdom-minded now, that if we are knowing already that we are citizens of heaven, if we are kingdom-minded now, that He will make us earthly useful now in this life. Now, this is important. I think the church tends to forget her unique identity in contemporary culture and in the worldliness that's all around us. And by the word church, again, I mean you. I mean me. I don't mean brick. I don't mean mortar. I don't mean shingles for a roof. By church, I mean those living stones that we looked at last week being built upon Jesus Christ as our true cornerstone, that we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that God's kingdom is advanced. I mentioned earlier that we are to abstain from sinful desires. What do you think that looks like? When I say that, in your mind, what are you, what, what's going through your mind right there that I'm to abstain from sinful desires? I don't think we understand that sometimes all that means, I want to say all that means like it's just, like it's just easy. I don't mean to say all it means like it's easy to do, but it's a simple truth of the Bible that God wants us to come to know Him. That's why God has given us the pages of Scripture. God wants us to come to know Him in such a way that if I am to actually abstain from sinful desires, it means that if I come to know God who created all things, who knows what is good, who knows what is true, if I'm come to know Him, then I believe that whatever God, His assessment of all things, I agree with it. God that created all things and knows truth of all things, that I agree with His assessment of all things. Here's how that works. If God cares about the poor, guess what? I care about the poor. If God finds sexual immorality destructive in my life, then guess what? If I've come to know God and I understand His assessment of all things, if God believes that sexual immorality is destructive in my life, then I too will feel that sexual immorality is destructive in my life to those around me and I will refrain from doing it. But do you see how all of a sudden, out of that kind of understanding of our relationship with God, that all of a sudden it's no longer morality? See, that's the key for us this morning. If my abstaining from the desires of my flesh, which wage war against my soul, if I understand out of a correct understanding of God and His assessment of all things, that what God believes is destructive in my life, if I agree with His assessment of that, then I will refrain from it. It's no longer something I do to be a good moral person. It's no longer something I do to earn favor with God. It's because I have come to know my God. All of a sudden, my outlook on everything is completely different. I, I like this term, prepared spontaneity. 
I was reading a book recently on marriage, and it said that, uh, that a husband or a wife should have a prepared spontaneity about them. And I was talking about a few things a little bit differently that I won't share with you this morning, but I think it works for us to think about having a prepared spontaneity that we should be prepared for the unexpected because God has told us to expect to be accused from those outside the Christian community. I hear more and more people complain. Yes, I hear you complaining about your fancy vacations that you get to take to Paris, to, I don't know, wherever all you get to go. But you know what the common thread is when people get back from those vacations? Boy, the people over there just don't like tourists. They just, they see, you know, used to, I know we don't wear fanny packs anymore, but this is, you know, they see you with your camera, they see you with your fanny pack, and they've got you targeted as a tourist. You go in the local place, they don't treat you like you belong there. They know you're just there for a week, and I don't like that. I don't know where to go. They won't tell us where the good places are. They know you don't belong there. So when you go on these vacations, you might expect to be treated a little differently. They don't treat you as a local, do they? They're not opening all the doors for you and welcoming you in. But we want to think that what God has in mind for us even in this life is that, is open doors and coming in and just smooth sailing. He's actually telling us that we should expect the opposite, that we should expect to be attacked, that we should expect to be accused from those from outside the Christian community because guess what? This is not your home. You're a tourist. You're just passing through. God wants you to know that you are on a journey heading somewhere. And I know some of you are thinking he's about to start talking about John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Great book, but I really, I'm going to keep from doing it this morning. I could. Great book. Go read it if you haven't. That's all I'll say. Great book, but, but the concept there is so wonderful that we are a pilgrim, that the Christian is a traveler traveling through to somewhere else. We shouldn't expect to be treated as though we belong here. We should expect to stand out. We should expect to have our binoculars, our camera, our fanny pack. We should expect to have all that on in the world to see us as different. So we should have a prepared spontaneity about us as we go through this life. And all of a sudden, my outlook on everything, I mean everything, is different. All of a sudden, my job is just another way to display the excellencies of God. All of a sudden, my marriage is just a way to display the gospel to the world through my relationship with my wife. All of a sudden, my money, guess what? My money, it's just money. How does my money just become money? It's no longer my identity. It's no longer my security. It's no longer how I get people to treat me differently because of maybe the power that it brings to me. It's no longer my reputation because I live in a certain neighborhood or I drive certain cars. My money just becomes my money when it's just money. It's not my security. My security is in Christ. It's no longer that which I desperately need in this life because I know the promises that God has given me for the life to come. But so many professing Christians pay mere lip service to heaven while their true focus is on earth. And here's what I mean by that. I love this question, but please hear me say that I love this question because of how self-convicting that it is. And I want to ask it to you this morning. When was the last time that you spent more of your day concerned about the things of heaven than you did about the things in this world? 
Think about the last day that you spent thinking about the things of God's kingdom than you did about the things that this world has to offer you. Our passage this morning is reminding us that our true focus must not be on the things of this world, but on the things in the world to come. But why do you think that's so? Why do you think we are to focus on the things in the world to come and not the things of the world now? Flip over a couple pages. Flip forward in the New Testament to 1 John. Let me read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Listen to what God says about the world which we live. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, that which I desperately want, in the eyes of the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is what? From the world. Verse 17, what in the world do we know about this world in which we live? And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, what? Abides forever. Guess what? This world as we know it is passing away. But your soul your soul, which the desires of your flesh are waging war against. This world is passing away, but your soul goes on to live forever. That's why God wants us to invest in the world to come instead of the world in which we live right now. Because He wants to remind us this morning that we are good as there. We're already there. We already have all the rights, all the privileges as citizens of heaven. But our Christian worship, that which we do together, corporately, what we're doing this morning, it actually recontextualizes for us and it reorients us as pilgrims, reminding us that we're on a journey, that we're headed somewhere, that we're just passing through as we begin another week. How many of us have gone in the backyard? I found myself doing this recently. How many of us have gone in the backyards with Junior and you go back there with Junior and you want to pitch the ball to Junior? What's Junior doing? He's usually looking off somewhere else. Or he's looking at the flowers growing. Or What do you have to tell him? What do you have to tell your son or your daughter to hit that ball? Keep your eye on the... It's okay. Keep your eye on the ball. That's right. But what happens? He's distracted by the dog running around. My brother or sister. Son, you cannot hit the ball if you don't keep your eye on the ball. If you don't watch it, there's no way you're going to hit that ball. God wants us to gather together so that he can say, Harrison, Harrison, keep your eye on the ball, son. He says, you're going to go out this week. He says, you're going to go out, and there are going to be so many distractions around you in that backyard. He said, you're going to be distracted by the world that's around you, all these desires of your flesh that you're going to want. You're going to even talk yourself into thinking you need. He wants us to gather back together so that He can reorient us as pilgrims heading somewhere else. So we come in here distracted, looking all over the place, He wants to focus us and say, Son, keep your eye on the ball. So when we gather back together here and we corporately worship God, He's reminding us that this is just temporarily our residence, but that He has offered us a permanent residence in His kingdom. I'm a temporary resident in this life, but why do I keep saying that we are a citizen of heaven? What does that mean to be a citizen of heaven? Jesus told us, He said, I have a place 
prepared for you that you cannot even imagine. He said, I'm going to go. They said, believe in my Father. Believe in me also. I'm going to prepare a place for you that has many rooms. Some translations that has many mansions. Yet what do I do? I get distracted by the world that's around me. But it starts by a right understanding of what it means to be a Christian and live in this world. Let me read verse 11. It says, Beloved, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage a war against your soul to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's going on here? Why do you think this little word right there, as? Why do you think that as, that little two-letter word, what do you think it's doing in there? He says, I urge you as. He's urging us because of who we are. Peter, Paul, and no, not the group with Mary, but Peter, Paul, Jesus, no one throughout the Bible will ever tell you how to live your life until God tells you exactly who you are. And in verse 11, we actually have God telling us how to live and He's giving us our doctrinal basis. The doctrinal basis for us out of this passage is that since we are chosen and precious in the Father's eyes, then we too, we also are chosen and precious in God's eyes. But if you believe this, as I believe the Bible teaches, then what we saw last week, coming into the verses this week, that if you are chosen and precious because of Jesus, that you are more beautiful in God's eyes than you could ever imagine. That right now as you are sitting right here, that God, through His Spirit, has begun a renovation project in your life to make you become glorious. Remember that last week? You know, we all looked around at each other and I said, point out somebody glorious and beautiful. And I said, we're really not a great looking bunch of folk. We're not. No offense. Myself included with you. But God's Word is promising us that He is going to make us more beautiful than we could ever imagine. But what we have to understand is that that is happening now. It's not something we just wait on. It's not something I just pay lip service to, that I profess, I love God. I love God's kingdom. I want to invest in His kingdom. Yet I really just continue to invest in the things in this life. God doesn't want that. God doesn't need my false promises. But what I want us to see this morning, and what I hope you remember really for the rest of your days in this life, is that the moment you become a Christian, the moment you become a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven. Now, I keep saying that, citizen of heaven. You may be familiar with that. Don't turn there, but let me read. Let me quote for you Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. God's Word says, But our citizenship is in heaven. That's why I keep saying that this morning. Because when you become a Christian, your status changes. Look, you can apply for citizenship in the United States. And when you apply for it, you actually are, just because you've applied for it, you're not a citizen of the United States yet, are you? Your citizenship is actually something that is placed on you from a higher authority. It's given to you. And until that is actually given to you, although you've applied for it and you've filled out everything that you're supposed to, and you're in waiting, you're not a citizen of the United States. It's the same thing going on with our citizenship in heaven. 
You're either a citizen of heaven or you're not. Peter's saying that we're a foreigner in this world because we're chosen and precious by God, so he's already placed on us a citizenship of heaven. This is not our home, although we temporarily reside now. I did this from the church office. This is, I hope, a decent way to illustrate this. From the church office on Google Maps, as far as I could tell myself driving north, I can travel 1,648 miles and still be in North Dakota. And when, although I've traveled more than 1,500 miles, I'm still in the United States. I'm just as much in the United States as I am when I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, although I've driven over 1,500 miles straight north. Look, some people are really not okay with this because of how when it gets to the very heart of the gospel, people are not okay with saying, the moment that God comes into my life and I'm converted, at that very moment, I am a full and complete heir to God's kingdom. Look, when people are getting married, there's a moment right before they're married, they're still not married. And then there's a moment when they are married. There was no in-between. There's no in-between. How many of us, how many of us have actually gone up to somebody and maybe you met somebody at a party or out somewhere and you said, hey, so, are you married? Well, I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Ah, who's to know who's married? Now, you'd walk away from this person concluding one of two things. One, this person is not married because, trust me, you know when you've got a spouse at home. It's just pretty clear. The other thing is this person obviously has no idea what it means to be married. You'd be right either way. You know it when you're married, don't you? Trust me. Every decision you make from that moment on is based off of you now being married. The same legal status that is applied to your being married as God is saying applies to your being a citizen of heaven. That same legal status applies to your relationship with God. But this is great news for us. The point is that we must throw away, just wad it up like a big old ball of trash and throw out the idea that we bring any righteousness of our own to God instead of God giving us the righteousness of His Son. Because it's in that moment you either are a Christian or you are not a Christian. There is no in-between. You're either trusting in your Savior for your sins or you're not. There is no wishy-washy. There's no in-between. It's an either-or. And God wants to say that is wonderful news for us this morning. The world is a great place to live. It can be. But if we think that we're going to get our greatest joy and satisfaction out of it, I've got to tell you, you have been very wrongly misinformed. And we try to do it in so many ways. This is not where we belong. But if we try to do it by buying or building a million-dollar home, if we try to do it through a great promising career, if we try to get our joy and satisfaction after marrying, uh, out of marrying the man or the woman of our dreams, we are completely mistaken. This is not your home, and it never will be. But that is great news for us. Being strangers in this life makes us useful in this life. So the more kingdom-minded we are, the more earthly useful that God makes of us now. I'll, I'll end with this. 
I'll end with this. It's a great story, and it's a true story of Doug Nichols. I don't know if you're familiar with Doug Nichols. He was a missionary in the 1960s. He was in India. In the 1960s, he got tuberculosis. So he finds himself for several months in a sanitarium there in India. Now, he was not supposed to go and be a missionary there in that sanitarium. He's doing other things. He gets TB, and they send him to the sanitarium. At one point, several nights in a row, he starts waking up coughing at 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, keep in mind, for the past few months, that Doug's been there, and he keeps trying to go up to people and talk to them. He has these little gospel tracts that he wants to hand out. He has copies of the Gospel of John in their own language, and he just wants to give them to them. He can't speak their language, but he's got the Gospel of John in their language. He just wants to give them to them. But if he goes and sits down next to one of them, guess what they do? And they're on the other side. They just thought he was another rich American come in there to just throw out whatever they wanted to and go on back to their comfortable life. But for several nights in a row, Doug would wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning coughing. And he noticed that there was an older man that kept trying to get out of bed each night. He had lost so much weight that Doug writes he wondered how this man was even still breathing, how he was still alive. The man couldn't get up each night and he would begin to whimper. He began to whimper and he would just fall back down into his bed. But one morning, the stench, the smell was so bad in the sanitarium and everybody was so angry at this man because he had not contained himself. There was a nurse that was sent to come clean up the mess. The nurse walks over there and smacks Doug right in the face. Just smacks him. Like, how dare you do this? Now I've got to clean up this mess. Because he couldn't contain himself. So the next night rolls around. Doug wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning and he sees the older man. And he tries to get up out of bed. And again, he falls back down into bed. And Doug writes that he heard the man begin to cry. So very softly, he said, but I noticed. So Doug gets up and he walks over there and as he approaches the man and gets closer to his bed, the man cowers. The man flinches in his bed. Doug said the man must have thought I was going over there to hit him again like the nurse did. But Doug had walked over there to pick the man up. So he picks the man up and he carries him to the bathroom, which is just a hole in the floor. After the man relieves himself, Doug carries him back to his bed and he lays him back down in his bed. But Doug, being weak himself from being in the sanitarium, losing weight, he's weak and his health is declining himself. So Doug says, I was really slow. So as I laid the man down, it was hard for me to even get back up, to lean back up out of the bed. He said, but because I couldn't get up quick enough, he said, the man had time. He said, this man reaches over and he kisses me on the cheek. He said, I walk back over to my bed. He said, and I, I get in and I fall back asleep. Doug writes it at 4 o'clock in the morning. Two hours later, there's a patient sitting on the edge of his bed tapping him. Like, wake up. With a hot, steaming cup of tea. And the man's going, mm, mm, however he was saying it, there, I want that. He's pointing to one of the Gospels of John that Doug has. Doug writes throughout the rest of the whole next day that people kept coming up to him over and over and over asking for his booklets. Asking for what it was that he had been trying to give them for months. This story is a way for us to understand that we are to declare the excellencies of God by acting them out in this life. 
when we act out the excellencies of God based off of the promises that He has made to us in the life to come, then people will hear them, guess what? With greater eagerness. Which is really just another way to say that our identity, who we are, who we've become in Christ, God made us who we are to show the world exactly who He is. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a God who walked over and picked us up in the stench and the smell and the filth of our sin and carried us to the Father and said, this one is chosen and is precious. Accept them for me. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we must recognize that this world is not our home. And when we do that, Lord, the more earthly good we are to You and to Your kingdom. That's how it works. Lord, the more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good that we become. Lord, I pray that we would be resting in Your arms today and for the rest of our days in this life, understanding that this is not our home. Lord, You have a place prepared for us that's beyond our imagination. Would we find comfort in that? Those of us who are hurting this morning, will we hold on to those promises? Those of us who are not experiencing difficulties right now, Lord, would we be trusting in You? Would we be using our time, our resources, everything that You've given us to display to the world the excellencies and the wondrous acts of our God that's brought us out of darkness? and into your marvelous light. And that we pray all of this in the chosen and precious name of Jesus. Amen.